There are many teachings in the restored gospel that make us unique. However, none of those could be as important as our emphasis on making covenants with God. On this episode of the podcast, I have Joshua Erickson on again as we conclude our Jewish calendar series by wrapping up with the Feast of Shavuot, also called the Feast of Pentecost. We break down its scriptural history and its significance in terms of making covenants with God. Stick around for that and more on this episode of the Mormon Renegade Podcast. There is no doubt as a general rule Mormons are a real social people, and there's no better place to connect with other people than at conferences devoted to Mormonism. With that said, there's one coming up that I can't recommend highly enough, and that is the Restoration Torah Conference. It is happening this year on May 26th and 27th in Linden, Utah. Many speakers you'll hear there have been on this podcast. They include Jacob Vadreen, Hannah Stoddard, Taylor Smith, Joshua Erickson, Kimberly Smith, myself, and more. Go to RestorationTorahConference.org or click on the link in this episode page notes to find out how you can attend. You're listening to the Mormon Renegade Podcast. Joshua, there's big stuff coming going on, man. Sounds like you're going to be uh, be hosting the the Restoration Torah Conference, right? Yeah, that's right. Um, not me necessarily, uh, uh, but the the Zarahemla Foundation is. Um, of course, I'm involved there. I'm the secretary for the Zarahemla Foundation. But yeah, this will be, we're coming up on the Restoration Torah Conference, and this will be our fourth year nice. of doing it. Yeah, the Restoration Torah Conference this year is going to be um, the 26th and 27th of May, uh, okay. which is a Friday and Saturday. And those are the, those are the two days right before uh, the Feast of Shavuot. Which is what we're on, talking about now. Which is what we're talking about today. Yep. So, um, which is why we're bringing up the conference. So it's kind of part of our uh, Shavuot uh, observance, let's say, or celebration. And like I said, it's been going on for we're going on our fourth year now, and we have some really interesting speakers. the The theme this year is going to be um, the Torah, which is for those of you who are listening. If you don't know, the Torah is the five books of Moses. Genesis uh, through Deuteronomy. So the Torah in uh, the Doctrine and Covenants and Church History. And there's a lot there. And we're going to have some excellent speakers, as I mentioned. Uh, Hannah Stoddard, Kimberly Smith, Taylor Smith, Jacob Vadreen, yourself. Yep, I'm going to be there. Myself as well. And um, so, and a bunch of other good folks too. So I highly recommend it. I was there last year, and it was just absolutely awesome. I, I really enjoyed myself while I was there. Now, real quick, um, what, what about cost? What does it cost? Yeah, I'm glad you asked that. Uh, the, the conference is free, so anyone can attend. Uh, we do ask for and even encourage donations, but we do not want finances to keep anyone from coming. There's, there's no pressure, no stigma attached um, if you can't donate or, you know, or can only donate a little or whatever. But um, we do want people to come and uh, participate. It's going to be 
We're going to gather in person. It's going to be in Linden, Utah. We're having it at the Kimber Academy, um, which is where we've had it the last, uh, the last years as well. Although the Kimber Academy formerly was in Lehigh, at least this branch of the Kimber Academy. Uh, but they moved to Linden and we decided to go with their location still. Uh, the Zara Hemel Foundation is not uh, associated or affiliated with the Kimber Academy, but they have been very accommodating. So that's uh, awesome. Yeah. And then what about a website or something that they can go to to yeah, get tickets? People, yes. Uh, you want to read about the conference, get tickets, go to restorationtoraconference.org, O-R-G, restorationtoraconference.org, and there you'll find information about the conference. You can see past conferences. You can see the, the speakers for this conference, get the schedule, um, the speakers, uh, you know, the titles of their talks, so kind of what they're going to be speaking on. And also there's a link there to register. You can also donate there too. There's information about donating. Um, when you go to register, uh, keep in mind that there are several different kinds of tickets. So we, it's going to be two days and the tickets for Friday and the tickets for Saturday are separate tickets. So if you're coming to both, then be sure that you click on both those options. If, and of course you can come to one or the other or both. Um, we also are going to be uh, serving lunch there for those who are attending. So if you want to hang out and speak, you know, talk with the, the speakers, if you have questions about their presentations or just want to meet with other interesting people, um, then that'll be a nice opportunity to do that. And then also, there's two other tickets. There's a ticket for a conference journal, which is a, actually a, it's going to be a paperback, uh, but physical copy of the presentations or like a form of the presentations um, so that you can refer to that later on for further study or whatever. And also there will be a Zoom option too. Uh, we prefer people attend in person. Uh, we can have the fellowship there, but for some people it's just impractical. There are people who are out of state, um, who will be attending by Zoom. So nice. You know, as as fundamentalists, especially fundamentalists that have come out of the LDS Church, there's a lot of missing the social aspect. A lot of times, right? There can be, yes, and it can and, be isolating. Yeah, and <clears throat> so these kind of things are, in my opinion, just super important. Right. It's going to let you meet other fundamentalists. It's going to, it's going to help you just widen those circles. And, and I think, I think it's one of those things that can't be overstated enough just how important they are when they come around. Yeah. And unlike things like the Book of Mormon Evidence Conference, which is great. I, mm -hmm. I love going. There's very few things just for fundamentalists, so to speak. Right. Now, yeah. obviously we have a couple speakers coming up at that, that, that are mainstream. Yeah. And, and this is great. Yeah, this is not. This is not a fundamentalist thing. Right. So, and actually, I, um, I'm, I'm glad that this kind of brought up, got brought up because a lot of times when you go to, um, uh, someone else's event, you kind of don't know, you kind of feel like the, the new guy, you know, and you're right. not quite sure what the, uh, the normal, uh, social cues are and things or, um, how the meeting is going to be run and stuff. But this is, this is really a non-denominational thing. And we're going to have folks there from half a dozen different branches of the restoration, uh, both in the audience and also at the pulpit giving talks. So 
don't feel don't feel like an outsider. Everyone's everyone there is uh, new, and um, um, it's just yeah, a good chance to uh, meet and uh, you know rub shoulders with other good folks. Absolutely, get some fellowship and some friendship and yeah, you know, and <laughs> social, intellectual, and spiritual stimulation. Absolutely. Absolutely. No, it's, it's, it's always a good time and I encourage everyone listening to go. I think it's absolutely fantastic. There are still tickets available. Yes. Yeah. I think, uh, actually I have not looked at the count, um, recently, but, uh, the venue has room for several hundred. Okay. We're, we're probably right now, the tickets are probably at, uh, I would say 50 or 60. So we've got plenty. Right. Yeah. Good deal. Good deal. Go get your tickets, folks. It's <laughs> it's a good time. You'll you'll be glad you went. So so we're on to I'm not even gonna try to pronounce it this time. I screwed it <laughs> up. Do the so Greek. Bad. Do the Greek, the yeah. Pentecost. Pentecost, yeah. Yep. We're 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 on to the feast of Pentecost, also known as Shavuot. Yep. I won't even pretend to try to pronounce it. Oh Shavuot's that. an easy one. Uh, but uh yeah, Shavuot is uh, is the Hebrew word for weeks. One week in Hebrew is Shavua. And then when you pluralize it, when you pluralize, um, in Hebrew, when you pluralize feminine, uh, words, uh, then oftentimes you add an oat to the end. So, like Sukkot, for example. Uh, okay. A single tabernacle is a Sukkah. And tabernacles is Sukkot. Okay. And a single week is Shavua, and weeks is Shavuot. And then when you have masculine terms, then oftentimes they're pluralized the im on the right. end, like Elohim. Yep. Yep. Um, for as a common example that people know. So uh, why is it called uh, Shavuot or weeks? Uh, because of the timing. And Shavuot is is an interesting feast because of all of all the biblical all the biblical um, holy days. They all have a, a specific date associated with them. So Passover is on the 14th day of the first month. Feast of Unleavened Bread begins on the 15th day of the first month. Uh, Hanukkah is on the 25th day of the ninth month. Uh, Yom Kippur is on the 10th day of the seventh month. And so on through all the feasts that we've talked about. They all have that specific date associated with them, except for Shavuot. Shavuot's unique because um, you actually determine when Shavuot is by uh, by counting seven weeks. That's where we get Shavuot. Seven weeks and and a day. Uh, so 50, which is 50 days, right? Yeah. which is where the Greek Pentecost comes from. You count 50 days from when the barley was um, harvested or the, you know, the beginning of the barley harvest. Now, uh, so, which means that there is a little bit of variability to when exactly Shavuot falls on the calendar. And there's actually controversy about that, uh, that goes back to ancient times. The Pharisees and the Sadducees actually disagreed about when Shavuot should be, um, observed. Um, but they were close to one another. It was, it was basically, uh, it was the barley harvest and it was the barley harvest kind of begins or the, uh, the first, you know, the sheet, the first sheaf of barley is offered 
in connection with uh, Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. It happens around that time. Um, and then, and then we count that, so those seven weeks or 50 days. Those, you can count it either way and you should end up at the same date. And that is the Feast of Shavuot. So, um, now why are we, why are we having a conference during Shavuot? Why is that a, why is that a, you know, an appropriate thing to do? Well, in the Torah, there's three times in the year when they're supposed to, everyone's supposed to gather. And uh, those three times are uh, one in the springtime at the uh, Feast of Unleavened Bread, two in the fall time at the Feast of Tabernacles. And then, and we kind of, as, as Latter-day Saints, as Mormons, we kind of do those, or at least um, the LDS Church does, and I think a lot of the other branches kind of either have their own conferences, you know, in the spring and in the fall, mm -hmm. April and October. And they don't always match up exactly with uh, Unleavened Bread and Tabernacles, but there's definitely a very strong echo there. If you're listening, uh, you can hear the echo of uh, those ancient Israelite things. Um, so, but then the third one um, is in uh, is Pentecost, and that's kind of in early, like late spring, uh, early summer, maybe you might even say that. Uh, it's usually before the, the solstice, so still in, so late spring, I guess. And no one really, uh, was doing anything for that. So I figured we ought to. So let's have, uh, let's get together and talk about, uh, the Torah and, and specifically, let's, we want to talk about it through the lens of the restoration. We want, we want to, we want to understand the Torah through the lens of the restoration and likewise, we want to understand the restoration through the lens of the Torah because um, because there ought to be a harmony mm -hmm. through the revelations that God has given throughout all the dispensations. And, and I have found uh, that there certainly is, and those things mesh together in a beautiful way, and there's amazing things that we can learn. And um, so that's what this conference is going to be all about. Um, I don't know if I mentioned it. I think I mentioned. If I didn't, I'll mention it again. This year, the theme of the conference is going to be the Torah in the Doctrine and Covenants and Church History. So and there's there's quite a bit there and on this podcast. In other uh, other feast days, I've you know consistently brought up um, applications and fulfillments of these holy days in light of the Restoration. You know, significant dates or happenings or significant um, doctrinal things that just kind of mesh beautifully with these. Um, so, uh, so I think there's some rich ore there to mine as Absolutely. far as this year's, um, this year's theme. So, um, so, you know, what is, uh, what is Shavuot all about? What is it celebrating? Well, uh, like many of the things there's, there's kind of multiple levels. There's kind of a physical understanding. There's spiritual understandings. And oftentimes there's, um, you know, there's remembrances where we're um, commemorating something that's happened in the past, something that God has done for for us, mm -hmm. for our people. Um, and also we're looking forward to you know, future and prophetic fulfillments of these things. So on, on the most basic level, uh, the Feast of Shavuot is the beginning of the wheat harvest. 
So that that 50-day count that kind of starts around um, Passover and unleavened bread, uh, that's kind of the beginning of the barley harvest. And that goes for uh, those seven weeks. And then uh, the wheat kind of comes in. That's the next. And um, and Shavuot kind of mar- marks the beginning of, of that. So uh, so it's a time to bring offerings um, you know, to the temple uh, in ancient times. Um, now, were those always sacrificed? Or were, was there like a storehouse or something for the poor that some of that would go into? Yeah, absolutely. Storehouse for the poor. Um, yeah, sacrifices of animals were animal sacrifice is only part of it. Actually, every every I don't every or most at least um, animal sacrifices also had um, grain, you know, flour and oil and wine, you know, and other other commodities, um, incense of various kinds, right, um, offered uh, along with it, and a lot of that would go to. Um, would go to uh, the maintenance of the temple and uh, the priests that were running it full time, and also, um, and also there would be a storehouse exactly right um, where that stuff would go to care for the poor and so on. Wow, that tells you how bad things must have gotten in the Savior's time that he felt like he then needed to cleanse the temple. Right? I mean, how bad did things get to where? Probably, I, I can only imagine that storehouse was probably neglected somewhat. I mean, if yeah. he's upset about the money going on in there. Yeah. And I don't think there was, you know, it's like so many things. Um, the uh, the thing itself is uh, is neither good nor bad. Right. Money is neutral. Right. Uh, money's not the problem. The love of money is the, is the, the real issue. Problem, right? Yeah. Yeah. So... Um, and we you could say that about so many other about about every inanimate thing, right? Um, so yeah, I think that there was definitely um, abuses happening uh, in the temple. I think people were, you know, who knows what was happening. Uh, I mean, you know, there's I've heard lots of conjectures. I even heard um, one the other day that says that uh, the there in the temple that they were taking people's gold and silver and exchanging it for fiat. Currency and like giving them paper, really paper notes. I, I don't know the reference for that, but giving them you know paper script that says you know this is good for so many ounces of silver or whatever. Um, and Jesus uh, thought that was wicked, you know. And I you know if that was what was happening, I would agree. But um, anyway, there's some sort of corruption that was happening. Uh, yeah, and that was that's interesting when he when he clean, cleansed the his father's house. He says. You know, cleaning my father's house, you've turned into a den of thieves. Right. Like yep. But that was um, even even that um, has is connected to the feasts because that was during Passover, right? And or leading up to it, and uh, you're supposed to clean your houses from of leaven. <laughs> and so he he was just keeping the commandment. He was cleaning the house. Of the wickedness of, right. or, you know, of leaven, which, and then the spiritual, um, counterpart, counterpart of leaven is, um, is corruption, right? Is these false ideals and, and, uh, and sin and so on. Or at least that's the kind of the standard understanding. So, so we can understand that too with the lens of these feast days. So it's amazing. Um, amazing how it all ties together. 
Now, um, so that's so the phys- there's this physical component, which is the harvest. There's a spiritual component too, though, and um, Shavuot is is basically covenant making day for God, and uh, the the one that's most commonly thought of is the covenant at Mount Sinai, when God came down, smoke, fire, lightning, right? The the sound of the shofar, uh, rushing of mighty wind, and a frightening experience. Now, in Exodus, it doesn't actually say that this was at Shavuot, but it's, uh, it's very, uh, tempting, um, to connect these events. And, um, and I believe that that's correct. As I said, uh, Shavuot doesn't have a specific day, but when you, when you start counting around the middle of the first month, that's when Passover and unleavened bread begin. You start counting in the middle of the first month and you go 50 days. You end up like in the first week of the third month, right at the beginning of the third month. And when they come into uh, the wilderness at like the base of Mount Sinai, it says it was right at the beginning of the third month when this happened. So, um, so uh, beautiful things there, of course, um, from from a restoration point of view. Um, well, let me back up. Um, in the scriptures, this event, what happened at Mount Sinai, is symbolically a marriage. This is when, uh, this is when Jehovah took, uh, the, the people of Israel as his bride and married them. And the, the covenant that was given was a covenant of marriage. And, you know, the law that was given was their ketubah. So ketubah is the, the Jewish wedding contract. Right. right. But the beautiful thing about that is, um, that this in, in the Jewish mind, this is kind of like the, um, this is the culmination. It was, it's almost the culmination of salvation. They're looking forward to the Messiah coming as well. Um, which would be the, the culmination, but receiving the, receiving the Torah, that's, that's like you've, like, it's a done deal. Like the marriage is, is complete here. And so, um, when you look at the, what happened to Israel, they went right through these, uh, first principles and ordinances of the gospel. You know, they go from, um, they're in Egypt, which is sin and bondage and all of that. And they exercise faith in Jesus, right? Which is the lamb. And they don't do anything at first, except, I mean, they do put, they put the blood on their door, but basically they just wait and watch after they've put the blood of Jesus on themselves, on their houses. Uh, then they wait and watch and that, that takes them, that gets them out of Egypt. Um, and that's kind of repentance. There's faith and then there's repentance. Repentance, like you, you don't apply the blood of Jesus and then stay where you are. No. Right? Repentance requires you to move. Yeah. Right? Yep. Turn, yep. To turn, you, at you, least to turn around and face a different direction. Right. Yeah. No. And, and, and it talks about that. Paul talks about that quite a bit, right? As if, if if you're a believer, you should expect to see these things, right? And, yeah. and people doing these things. And it, to be honest with you, it was one of the draws to Mormonism, right? For me, because I, I have this, the rest of, of Christendom kind of, I shouldn't say the rest, but the vast majority of Christendom has this idea of you, uh, you accept Jesus into your heart. And from there, you just show up and throw a couple bucks in the, offering plate and you're good to go right yeah 
yeah. Which is weird for me because I'm lazy enough that that sounded like a good deal up front, right? But uh, yeah, no, I, I thought there should have been a little more to salvation. If you're going to be a saint, yeah, and it requires a relationship, yeah, and it requires some work on your part, which yeah, and a relationship is two ways. Yep, absolutely. So, so on the first day of unleavened bread, uh, they they exercise you know the, the principle of repentance and they leave Egypt. And then, um, but, you know, Egypt has, uh, we talked about this in the Passover thing, right? Egypt, Egypt represents your friends right. in a spiritual sense. Is it, well, your friends and your enemies both who do not want to see you do good because, you know, who knows why? Because they're missing out on their, their, uh, their drinking buddy because, um, it makes them feel bad about their own sins to see someone else repenting and they'd rather just, um, whatever, whatever the reason is, there are people that when you repent, they will want to drag you back. And so, um, anyway, so of course we know, um, uh, Pharaoh eventually gives chase and on the seventh day of unleavened bread, this is when they, they go through the Red Sea. Um, and so they're actually baptized in a symbolic sense. Israel is baptized there. And of course the, uh, the Egyptians are drowned and washed away and they finally leave Egypt behind. Um, and then not only are they baptized, but they also have the gift of the Holy ghost because they have this, uh, pillar of fire, right? Fire that is connected in the scriptures symbolically with the Holy ghost. The Holy ghost is fire. The Holy ghost is also wind right. or air, right? And so they have a cloud and fire, um, to guide them through the wilderness. And the wilderness is of course, just this, um, uh, enduring to the end kind of, right. which is gospel principles too, right? That comes next is you just, then you just keep walking the walk. And, um, and then eventually they get to, uh, the mountain and it takes them 50 days you know, from Passover, um, till they get to the mountain. And then, um, <clears throat> and then there comes their marriage. Right. Okay. And this is, this just goes along with, uh, with Mormonism. Too right, you go through the ordinances, and the you know the highest ordinance is is marriage, is sealed. Right, right? yeah, that right. that is the crowning. Well, it's almost the, the crowning. Almost right? the crowning. We would say we would say the crowning, and then but there's there's uh, the second anointing, the second anointing, yeah. which actually is is uh, in the story of Shavuot as well, because um, God gives them the covenant, and then He says, "Now, everyone, come up to the mountain, and I want to meet with you." Actually face-to-face now uh, that's that's where israel said this is this is getting too this relationship's too serious for us right right um and uh said we want moses to go up for us right and so uh he does and they reject that that offer but that was that was extended and um and uh so moses goes up he actually gets uh, tablets and brings them down. And of course, by then the people have just broken the, the covenant that yeah, they just made. Didn't take them long at all. <laughs> I mean, I, it, like, it, they're called the children of Israel for, you know, I look at it two ways, right? First off, I'm like, morons. I mean, he <laughs> just led you through an ocean, right? He led you through the right. Red Sea. Do you get, he's he's there. He's present. He's working. Right. You know, and the other part of me though makes me wonder just 
how much of that was just societal scarring? Oh, right? absolutely. Where where they're like, uh, you know, because they these up, people have been slaves. Yeah, and, they do not know how to think for themselves. And and they've had this guy Moses around, who's kind of been calling the shots. Yeah, and now he's gone, and it, it's almost like a reversion back into to that old Slave way of thinking. Yeah, yeah. Uh, no, that's exactly right. Um, I mean the uh, the invitation really was. Um, and this is, this is the invitation to any free people. Right. In a way is, is that I want a nation of priests. Priests. Yeah. Yep. And, and, um, but children of Israel said, we just want, we just want Moses, we just want you to be our, the guy. We, we just want to, you know, abdicate our responsibility. Yeah. And that's the, that's the, that's the struggle. Um, uh, that's always the struggle between, you know, freedom and tyranny is, will you hand over your rights and responsibilities to some guy that you think is going to do right by you? Or are you going to take responsibility for yourself and your actions and, um, you know, meet and go up and meet with God yourself? And, you know, so I to speak. Yeah. No, I, I, yeah, I absolutely find it fascinating that, that you're right. It is the, it's the crux of the matter. And as you look back through the breadth of human history, mankind's default operating system, so to speak, is that is one of tyranny, right? Being ruled. It is. It is even, the, even the if, default. I think yeah. I like how you said that. Yeah. Uh, even if you look at, at, you know, a quote, a benevolent dictator, right? Yeah. It's still a tyranny of some sort, whether you find it pleasant or not. It's still somebody else making those decisions for you. And, uh, it took me a long time to wrap my head around this thing where, you know, it, it speaks of freedom and that sort of thing. And I'm like, how can that be freedom? Right. Cause you're, you're, you're still under, you know, the, you know, the, the yoke of Christ, so to speak. Yeah. Right. The thing is, is that there's no real freedom without some sort of discipline or else yeah. tyranny again begins to come yeah. forward to reign in the insanity. So. I think there's so many interesting parallels. And just as a side note, I I took my talk that I'll be giving in uh, at at the Torah conference a way I did I hadn't planned on. As I sat down to write it, it went in a did different write way. Itself, in it a way. Did, it <laughs> did it yeah. did write itself in a way. Um, like I had the text all wrote out before I inserted the pictures or anything uh -huh. else, right? Um, but. There were a couple of things that I found interesting, especially as we've been talking about uh, the, the the Feast of Pentecost here, is that um, my my talk is really heavily weighted with laden with the idea of covenants again, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. really heavily laden. Uh, Very appropriate. Yeah, which I, I I had no idea, right? And then to hear you talk about it, it's just you know one of those coincidences that aren't really coincidences right yeah i just happened to have bumped my head that morning and was listening to the spirit so <laughs> uh doesn't yeah. happen often but when it does it always works out so yeah i i find it interesting that there's so much of israel's story that's our story mm -hmm. oh yeah and and i think i think this is just one of those a continuation of that yeah we are there uh if not if not literal descendants, which I tend to think many of us are, if not uh, if not literal, are. we are certainly the 
spiritual inheritors. You know, I th- those things. I think we are. If you look at all the things that Joseph said about Ephraim oh, yeah, being here, and like I said, I've had a couple of friends um, uh, from who who are Jewish who have said, "Oh yeah, that's the reason we feel so comfortable in America mm-hmm. is because there there are times we feel like we're amongst family here." Yeah. Um. So yeah, I I I definitely do believe that there there's those literal descendants. You know, it's um. Uh, the Book of Mormon, the Book of Mormon calls us Gentiles, right? Um, I don't think that means. Uh, I don't think that means anything about our lineage, though, right? Because um, we know we know what tribes uh, Lehi and Ishmael were from. Uh, they were they were Josephites, right? right? Uh, Lehi was from Manasseh. Ishmael uh, was from Ephraim. <clears throat> and yet, uh, Nephi refers to, like, the the descendants of Lehi in the Book of Mormon, they are referred to as Jews. Right. And um, that actually is a criticism of the Book of Mormon uh, for some people because, oh, they're not from the tribe of Judah. But that's not what Jews means. It, it can carry that connotation, but Jew means from the kingdom of Judah. Okay. In other words, the southern kingdom. So everyone from the southern kingdom, everyone who comes from the southern kingdom is Jew. And we can see that in the, in the good old Bible. Right. Um, Esther and Mordecai, uh, in the book of Esther, they are explicitly mentioned as being from the tribe of Benjamin. And yet they are Jews because they're, not because they're from the tribe of Judah, but because they're from the southern the kingdom, kingdom of Judah, yeah. right? So that's a that's a national designation, not a lineal designation. Gotcha. So when the Book of Mormon calls us Gentiles, it's not saying something about our lineage; it's saying something about the nations that we came from. Okay, all right. No, we are Gentiles sense. because we came from Gentile nations, dude. I'm not so, because we're Gentiles by lineage, right? I'm so glad you brought that up because that's something I've struggled with. I'm like, how are we both? Because with most things, and it's funny, my talk starts out this way too. With most things, I tend to answer a question uh, or ask a question, yeah, and figuring it's an either or answer, and yeah. usually it's not. Usually it's an and question, you know, yeah, answer, yeah. Yeah. right? And I think, yeah, that's beautiful because I've wondered that several times myself. Like, how are we both both Gentiles? Right? We we hear about that in the Book of Mormon, the coming forth of. Of you know the stick of Joseph unto the the Gentiles, yeah. But then you go to like Third Nephi sixteen, and it talks about well, when the Gentiles fully reject the gospel, then it will go back to the house of Israel. And I'm like, okay, so does that mean if we've screwed up as a people, does that mean that we can't access those anymore? Well, that doesn't make sense. That doesn't fit with who I know God is. Yeah. So, yeah, no, I think that's beautiful the way you said that. It, it doesn't necessarily speak of our lineage, more of our nationality. Yeah. So I think there's there's interplay between yep. those two senses of both Gentile can be used in two senses. Right. There is a, a genealogical and also a national sense and also Israel and Jew. Those also have both nationalistic and genealogical senses of the word. So, um <clears throat> I want actually while we're talking about Sinai, just changing the subject a little no, bit. No, you're I, good. I, I want to uh, I want to mention uh, Jabel al Laws. Uh, have you heard of Jabel al Laws? I have not. So Jabel al Laws 
is a mountain in Saudi Arabia, um, which I believe is the the correct location for Mount Sinai. Okay. Which is um, there's there's some controversy over this, and uh, you know if you look in the the maps in the back of the uh, the LDS Bible, it will it has a it has a, a little pin there on a Mount Sinai. Um, with a question mark by it, I think, because it is kind of disputed, but that is the, that is the traditional, uh, Christian view. But that just came about from Constantine's mother, uh, St. Catherine, and she went through and said, this mountain here is, uh, was where the children of Israel, you know, received the covenant of Sinai. She did that in a lot of places in the Middle East. She yeah. was prolific at being able, <laughs> she was either a seer or she was just directly Pulling that out of thin air. Either uh, way, yeah. I mean, some of them she got correct, probably, but I mean, other other ones you got to like. How do you know? Yeah, the problem with uh, problem with, and there's a monastery there, St. Catherine's at the bottom and stuff. The problem with that uh, traditional site um, is twofold. One, it that mountain is actually in Egypt still, but they had they had left Egypt, and the New Testament Paul says that. Sinai is in Arabia, in Midian, not right. in Egypt. So, and Midian is where Saudi Arabia, Midian was where Saudi Arabia is. Which so, would also make sense because that's where Moses' father-in-law lived, right? That's exactly right. Yeah. Which would make sense. where Jethro Yep. Was. Yep. So, uh, and, uh, right, yeah. Uh, you know, Moses goes up to Sinai the first time, at least the first significant time when he's tending Jethro's sheep, or maybe they were his sheep by then. I don't know, but um, yeah, that was in Midian. So, so Jabal al Laws is the the Arabic name for this this mountain there. The other problem, uh, besides the the location that is you know consistent with what the scriptures say, is there's also archaeological uh, problems uh, at the traditional site uh, in Egypt. There's basically zero archaeological evidence. Um, that Israelites were ever there. <clears throat> but uh, at the Jabal al-Laz site, there's a host of both archaeological and geological evidence, too. Like, for example, the, the top of this mountain is um, is blackened, um, like it was on fire or something. Uh, there's a big split rock up at the top, uh, or near the top. Um, there are um, ancient... Uh, Hebrew inscriptions, Paleo Hebrew, Paleo Hebrew inscriptions all over the place. Um, there's a lot of uh, footprints actually chiseled um, on the rocks, which is interesting because um, one of the promises God tells them, He says, uh, "Every place where your feet trod will be the land I give you." And so there's all these um, huh. footprints chiseled into the rock along with the Hebrew inscription. Uh, Paleo Hebrew inscription, um, you know, like basically claiming the, the right. land as theirs. Okay, there's also uh, you know there's a bunch of there's twelve pillars at the base uh, that have been set up. There's even one. Uh, uh, there's altars and things that have been found. There's even one altar that's kind of lifted up. It's kind of a natural altar, but um, there's a bunch of like um, uh, inscriptions, you know, petroglyphs of cows being worshipped and stuff. That was someone going. Don't do this. This went horrible for well, us. Well, yeah. <clears throat> well, I think that I think they may have been 
I think they, those might have been uh, part of the ceremony. Yeah, that was when they were getting ready to worship the golden calf. I mean, uh, anyway. Yeah. So this uh, this Jabal laws, I, I highly recommend uh, people looking up. Uh, it's very interesting. Uh, there's a there's an LDS guy. I think his name is Roy Potter. Okay. Um, he actually went and um, found some interesting, like Book of Mormon archaeological sites there too. Um, one of them is there's there's a wadi that's nearby there. Right. Actually, it's interesting. Um, getting off into Book of Mormon things, there's and I, I forget. Well, I'm I'm scatterbrained right now, so I'm, I apologize. But um, there are a lot of official sources that say there are no rivers in Saudi Arabia. No, no um, perpetual rivers, no perennial rivers. But uh, you know, Lee and his family, they they leave Jerusalem and they start heading down by the Red Sea, and they're not they haven't been going too far, and they come to this. There's a valley, right, with a with a river, and um, uh, the Valley of Lemuel, right, right. And, there's, and there's a river flowing through it that's flowing continuously, uh, right? I says, and um, anyway, there's a lot of, uh, but. Uh, a lot of, like I said, official sources say that there are no rivers in Saudi Arabia, but there actually is. And it's up there um, near the Red Sea. Um, and uh, as far as I know, Roy Potter was the one that uh, found it. But it's actually pretty close to where Jabal al-Laws is. Like Lehi and his family would have, when they were journeying uh, near the borders of the Red Sea, um, they would have come to the place where the Israelites crossed and then Mount Sinai. Um, is right near there, and uh, and I believe some at least some of the the spiritual experiences that um, you know, Nephi had, you know, being caught up into a high mountain, he says oh. when he has this vision and stuff. Like I think that was probably at uh, the mountain of the Lord at at Sinai, or at least uh, or at least that was involved in in some way that their their proximity to that that holy place was a, a factor. So Yeah. You know, I, I find it interesting, and I've said this before, but again, this just bears it out. Mormons and and Jewish folks have a lot in common, right? We, we More than we both realize, I think. Yeah. I mean, you look at, you know, things that that are done, let's say, during Passover meals and you know, even the Seder, there's a lot of things hearkening back. And you look at what we do with our youth, right? We take them on trek or we yeah. we acquaint them with our history. Right down to this, right? I mean, if you let Heartlanders and and those folks espousing a Mesoamerican model for the Book of Mormon, they have this argument about where it took place. And mm -hmm. it sounds like within Judaism, there's this mm -hmm. argument about where was Moses, where was Sinai. I just find it interesting that that we share so many similar characteristics. Yeah. When it when it comes to that, it's it's fascinating and interesting <laughs> as you just look at it. Yeah, I think we have uh, <clears throat> we have humans in general. Yeah. Yeah. We have a lot more in common with each other than we would care to admit. Care to sometimes. admit sometimes. <laughs> yep. Yep. Yeah. I agree. So, anyway, so uh, back to uh, back to the story of Shabuot, I guess. Um, just some more interesting things. So. Um, uh, they received uh, the covenant and um, Moses, you know, uh, sprinkles blood on the uh, on the people, you know, to seal the deal. And then he actually goes up into the mountain with um, I'll read it here. This is in Exodus chapter 24 and then went up 
Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel. And they saw the God of Israel, and there was under his feet, as it were, a paved work of sapphire stone, and as it were, the body of heaven in its clearness. So Moses and uh, the, and uh, Aaron, uh, Nadab, and Abihu, and the 70, they go up, they see God, they see God's throne room, basically. And it goes on, it says, um, um, they saw God, it says in verse 11, they saw God and did eat and drink. So they mm. basically had a, uh, a fe- the Feast of Shavuot, you know, up there with God. Uh, it's pretty amazing. Um, and, and then, and then Moses comes down, um, with the stones and, and it says that the stones were provided, the stones were provided and carved by the finger of God. And the only stone that is mentioned in the chapter is the sapphire stone that was in God's throne room. And so, uh, there's some. There's some strong circumstantial evidence there, and there's uh, traditions, Jewish traditions, that say that the first set of tablets were written on sapphire, hmm. or some some of the uh, some of the translations say maybe um, lapis lazuli. Hmm. But anyway, it was on a blue stone. I like the sapphire imagery. It says clear, uh, right. clear like heaven. Okay, um, and so uh, they were blue, and um, and uh, a lot of times when you when you hear about the color blue in the scriptures, then you should be thinking about this these first set of tablets that had the commandments on them. Blue is actually a, a symbol of of heaven for one, and also of the commandments, which is where heaven comes from. The and it's you know from the throne of God. I find it interesting that blue is still a pre- pretty prominent color on the Israeli flag too. Yes. Yeah, right. <clears throat> and the uh and the kingdom of God flag. Right. Yeah. Too, right. Yep. <clears throat> and I don't think that's I think that's no, I mean that's on purpose. Yeah. So that's harkening back to this. Let me ask you covenant. this. You talked about in the script you read there in the scriptures that it wasn't just Moses that went up to the mountain to see the Lord face to face. That's right. Seventy elders went with him too. Yeah. Is that maybe where the office of seventy comes from? Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is the uh, I I don't think there's anything uh, like Solomon says is nothing new under the sun, right? Yep. I think um, I mean the twelve, uh, all of the all of the tribes had a prince, right? You know, or a, a chief, a chief, and um, those are those are the those are the twelve apostles, right? Those are the twelve sons. Those are the twelve heads of the of the twelve tribes. And yeah, then we have the seventy right here. We have we have a first presidency, right? We have we actually have uh, right. We have uh, Moses and we have Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu. So we have these three, and then these seventy. And um, I mean these these numbers uh, come up quite frequently. And it is true that in in the Old Testament there's it's not as clear as, you know, it's not laid out as clear as it is in the Doctrine and Covenants. Right. Okay. And in the New Testament, it's not really quite as clear either. Um, but it's, the patterns are definitely there and repeating. Right. I just found that interesting. It's just something that popped, popped in as, as you were reading it. I was like, 
Yeah, it's just like maybe that's where the office comes from, the actual priesthood office of the seventy. Yeah. And I think and uh seventy, um I, I think so. The seventy are supposed to be uh traveling right. missionaries. Yep. yep, correct. Um and in Hebrew numerology, seventy is a is a symbolic representation of the nations of the earth. Okay. Um and this actually ties in with Shavuot too. I'm gonna to mention it right here, right now. Um, when Israel left Egypt, it was not only, uh, pure-blooded Israelites, but, uh, says specifically that there was a mixed multitude of people that left with the Israelites. And Jewish tradition says that they were, uh, there was people, uh, representing all the 70 nations, the 70 other nations besides Israel, um, hmm. that all attached themselves to Israel. You know, of course, they were all in Egypt. Why were the, why were all the nations in, represented in Egypt? Well, a couple of reasons. One, Egypt was like was the world superpower at the time. Right. Two, um, uh, a couple of generations earlier, you got massive famine. It was famine, and yeah. everyone had gone to Egypt for food, and and then people just probably settled there, just like the Israelites did, and uh, started little, uh, you know, whatever. Babylonian colonies and Macedonian colonies and, um, and uh, places from all over uh, the known world, at least. So do we have any record of what happened to those ones who weren't Jewish by birth, right? The, those mixed multitudes. Did they just show up and then were they just brought in? Yeah. I mean, you know what? Uh, um, it's interesting. This is This is something that's Actually, this is kind of misunderstood, I will say, is um, a lot of people think that um, the idea of like being adopted into Israel, like that that's a New Testament thing, but it's from the very beginning, from the Passover. Yeah. And, um, and the Exodus, God basically says, if you are a foreigner and you want to come and keep my law and do the things that Israelites do, then you'll be part of you'll be considered a uh, part of us like you'll have your inheritance will be with us from the beginning like that's adoption and grafting in that idea is not a new testament idea that is an old testament idea you know and and that actually has some pretty significant tie-ins with the restored gospel we know that there was law of adoption in the early days of the LDS church right this idea because you had people who were you know, think about this right you're in Sweden, you're in England, and you are, you've received a testimony of the fullness of the gospel. Or maybe it's just you, right? right. Or maybe it's you and your small family. Yeah. And, and you're coming you over. No inheritance. Yeah. No one to inherit with. And you're coming over and you've got no one to look after you. And I, I don't know, this, this idea of adoption, it, I, I'm, I'm fascinated with it as of late. I, I find it to be very fascinating. And, and, Having this brought up in this discussion, I think probably shows some some connections back to that. Absolutely. Oh yeah, there's definitely echoes at least. Yeah, and yeah, which is again what we would expect, right? So, um, so those first tablets, um, they were uh, they were blue stone um, from the throne, like they were from heaven, and the whole the whole point of the whole point of the law. Uh, was always to um, uh, to 
have to have it impressed upon our hearts. Right. Right. We want to have, and I mean, there's, there's several, um, verses. I mean, have some in both the New Testament and the Old Testament, Second Corinthians and Hebrews, Jeremiah and Ezekiel. They talk about, um, the fleshy tablets of our heart. And that's always what God's been, been after. And, um, not that, not that once we have, you know, the God's law in our heart that the stones can go away. Um, you know, that the, that the physical law can go away, but that, um, that our, that our flesh actually conforms to, uh, to the stones. Right. The stones are like a stamp and our flesh conforms to it. That's the, that's the idea. Um, you know, I get, uh, uh, this ties into a little to what we were talking about earlier, but um, sometimes Christians kind of uh, bristle at the idea of the law. Right? They don't. Right. They just want to love God, you know, and be saved and whatever. Um, and God's, you know, God likes that. I'm sure uh, in some sense, but God wants more than that. God wants a, a people. God wants a nation, and you can't, you can't run a nation. With everyone just Doing say, that, say that you love Jesus, right? Without without a code of laws, you have to have laws in order to be free. That's this right. is what we were talking about. Yeah, yeah, because it can't just be everyone do whatever they want and love God like that. That's that's hell. You know? <laughs> well, and and this harkens back. You know this this that's golden calf stuff. Yeah, actually, when uh, sorry, I'm gonna say one more thing. And I'll let yeah, you, when they worship the golden calf. Um, and all the and all the debauchery that went along with that, uh, you know what you know what Aaron said to them. He said, "Here is uh, here is your God that took you out of Egypt. Let's have a feast to Yahweh, like let's have a feast to the Lord." And so that's what they, they were worshiping Jehovah, you know, but they were they were doing it according to their own desires, and that's what you get when people just love Jesus without any guidelines is you get abomination. <laughs> you know, well, you get corruption. And and I don't think there's any real freedom there. And and I'll I'll again take this back to to America's story a little bit. When when we're first a country after we managed to beat Britain, we're operating under the Articles of Confederation. Right? The founders understood that they had to move the needle, so to speak, on freedom just enough so that you could have order and the maximum amount of freedom. That's why we're not really a democracy. We're a republic to right. slow down this idea of everyone just doing their own thing no matter what. Because if you just do your own thing without any sort of guidelines, any sort of structure, what you get is mobocracy, right? Right. And how free are you when somebody comes to steal your crap? You're not free at all. And so this idea of freedom through um, some sort of discipline, I think, deserves some attention and some weight, more so than what we'd like to admit. Yeah, amen for that. So um, I'm going to go back to the, the blue the blue stones. Um, and the color blue is, it's interesting. Of course, we know that those, those blue stones were lost, right? Moses came mm -hmm. down and broke them all when he found the people defiling themselves with the calf. Um, 
but a couple of other interesting things. Um, the first part, um, the first part of the Book of Mormon, uh, which we lost also. Right. Was actually, um, <laughs> it was, it was written on blue paper. Really? And then it was gone. Yeah. So, I mean, I don't know, uh, I, I just find that to be an interesting coincidence. Absolutely. I didn't realize that. Yeah. <clears throat> so, um, I did want to mention, um, one other thing is the, uh, um, one of the things that uh, they were supposed to do for the law is uh, they're supposed to tie a blue thread on their, on the four corners of their garments. And, um, and the blue thread was, they're supposed to be able to look at that blue thread and says, and to remember the commandments. And why is the blue thread reminding them of the commandments? Because those first stones anyway were, were blue. At least that's part of it. So it's kind of like the original CTR ring, if you will. Okay. Right. Right? Okay. You look yeah. at it and that reminds you, you know, do what's, do what's right. You know? Right. So, um, uh, and this is, uh, this is what, uh, Jesus had. Jesus was wearing these, these t- blue tassels. They're called zit zit. The zit zit. Um, and, um, this is what that, that woman who had that, uh, issue of blood. Right. Um, when she touched the hem of his garment, it was actually the, the tassel. Know, the tassel is the tassel. She touched the tassel, and she knew. She knew actually that that she knew that if Jesus was the Messiah, and I'm sure she had a spiritual witness of that before she attempted something so brazen. Um, she knew that it was prophesied that he would have healing in his tassels in his disease. Uh, now, in the English. Uh, the prophecy in Malachi says he will have healing in his wings. wings yeah. But that's, those are the fringes or the tassels of, um, of his garment. And so she knew that, uh, that was prophesied and she, you know, exercised faith in that. That was the, the first public healing that happened. Right. And then, um, that's, she's famous for that. But if you read in the following chapters, it says that people from all around came to touch his zizi and were, and everyone who did uh, was healed. And, um, you know, and this just, there's so much symbolism in that too. Um, one is, one is, uh, you know, Jesus and his power, but another is, but it wasn't, it wasn't just Jesus. It was these, it was the blue tassels, which are a reminder of the law. And the law is, the law is, is healing for sick people and sick nations yeah right it's it's fascinating because we can see what happens when we don't follow the law right i mean if we look at the disaster that's chicago right now with just the beatings and the lawlessness and certain companies pulling out of san francisco altogether we need some we we need to hearken back to the law right both both our national law which largely is founded upon the Ten Commandments yeah, absolutely. in Judeo-Christian tradition, as well as, you know, getting ourselves back into Scripture and knowing that law. Because we are a sick society at the moment. And and you're right, that we do need some healing through... We need to touch. The, yeah, we need to we touch need those to tassels. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, in preparation for this, I actually um, I came across a, a talk from Neil Maxwell in uh, October. Uh, 1974 general conference 
I thought it was just so fitting. He actually was the t- in the talk. He was he was speaking to um, people who are kind of like in the church, but uh, are just um, sitting on the sidelines and not really getting in there and participating from like what we've been talking about. And um, it's the talk is kind of humorous because he's just telling people how to. He's giving them advice for how to stay on the sidelines. Right. If you want to stay on the sidelines, then like don't do these things that I'm going to tell you about. So he gives this list of things not to do so that you can stay comfortably on the sidelines doing nothing and just let the kingdom of God pass you by, (laughs) so to speak. So one of the things he says, he says, if you want to stay there, he says, do not let yourself reflect too much on the social, political, and economic indicators that suggest the gathering storm. This is in 1974. Lest you realize that there is an inseparable connection between keeping the commandments and the well-being of society. Don't, don't think about that too much. Um, it, it might take you into the uh, roads that you're uncomfortable, uncomfortable traveling. Yeah. In. yeah, yeah. So anyway, I thought that was brilliant. So um, let's see. So, um, I, w- I want to talk about the, uh, the change in, or what happened with the, the tablets. Okay. Right. So Moses comes down and, um, he's carrying these tablets. Actually, uh, it's interesting. The Jewish tradition, I mean, these are stone, they're not stone. <clears throat> Jewish tradition says that these tablets would carry their own weight. So, Ooh. so they would just, uh, Moses could take them down the mountain without any effort. Uh, on his part, basically. Um, so there's interesting things to think about there. But, uh, of course, he breaks them. And then, uh, then you know, Jehovah says he's going to destroy the people. And Moses intercedes and says, um, convinces, you know, reasons with God, uh, bargains with God, says, take me instead. And uh, God says, no, that's okay. Um, um, this is what, I, this is what we're going to do. Uh, it says they're not, they're not ready for, what I had offered them. One, they didn't want to come up when I invited them. And two, they immediately went back to their Egyptian ways as soon as there was no supervision. Right. <clears throat> this so, was a people who weren't ready for freedom of any any sort. That's right. So, um, but they needed, they needed law still. So, um, there's, there's kind of two theories about um, what was what was on the first and second set of tablets and um everyone everyone agrees that uh the children of israel were uh cursed right they had to go uh, they they could not enter the promised land immediately um which was what god's goal for them was at least um one of his goals for them that's not the only goal but that was the next step and they weren't ready for that so they had to go through the wilderness for 40 years until, you know, the, that older generation died off, right? But even then, I mean, we say, we like to say cursed. Um, and indeed the scriptures are clear that they were cursed, but it's, it wasn't a bad cursing. I mean, uh, they had all their food provided for them. Like God was with them directly. The pillar of fire was there guiding them. They were protected from their enemies. They had, um, water, um, 
and scripture says that even their like God made it so their shoes and their clothes didn't even wear out in forty years. So yeah, it's not all in all not too bad of a curse, but but uh, we definitely know that they were cursed. So these are the two these are the two theories. Um, one is the um, as far as um, what was on the tablets. The first theory or the first hypothesis, I'll say hypothesis. First hypothesis is the uh, replacement hypothesis, and the second one is the redaction hypothesis. Okay, so um, the the first hypothesis, the uh, the replacement hypothesis, says basically that they were that the law that they received was the curse that they were cursed with the lower law, and um, so like so basically that Moses came down the first time and it was. The high law, or the higher law, the Melchizedek things, and then uh, the people disqualified themselves, and so that was removed and was replaced with the lower law, the physical law, the carnal law, the Aaronic or Levitical law, and that, and that, that, um, so that that was, in essence, the curse was receiving that um, lower law. Now, um, okay. So that's one. The um, the second uh, theory, the redaction theory, or hypothesis, I use the word hypothesis, um, is that uh, actually both things were given. The lower law and the higher law were given together on that first set of tablets. And then uh, when the people prove themselves unworthy, then the higher law, the Melchizedek portion of things, was removed. And that, but that the uh, the lower law uh, remained. So, so that the curse was not uh, the receiving of the lower law. Rather, in this hypothesis, the curse was the removal of the higher law. Hmm. So, and there's a there's a subtle but I think important uh, distinction to be made there. So, um, now I know I'm well aware of what. Um, you know, our Catholic and Protestant forefathers have taught about this. And much of their teaching and ideas have been absorbed by the children of the Restoration. But we want to know, you know, what our scriptures say. And so we can kind of test between these two competing hypotheses um, by looking at the scriptures. So I'm going to read um, in two places. Um, the first one is going to be We'll go to we'll go to Deuteronomy first here. Deuteronomy chapter ten. Uh ten verse two or so. Okay. Um actually I'm gonna start at verse one. Here's the unfortunate truth right now. As fundamentalists and traditional LDS folks we can't expect to have accurate history told by others because true history and scholarship is problematic for certain people and organizations. We're going to have to do this work ourselves, and to do that, we'll have to support each other in this kind of work. Now, anybody who's anybody in fundamentalist circles knows who Drew Briney is. He is perhaps the most prolific author within Mormon fundamentalism. Drew's newest project is something I think all Mormons can benefit from. He is in the process of creating an annotated version of the Doctrine and Covenants. 
Once you have a copy of this, you'll be able to compare current sections with previous versions and also what early LDS leaders had to say about that particular section. As fundamentalists and traditional LDS folks, we are constantly trying to get back into the minds of the early brethren. This project that Drew is engaged in right now is going to be the ultimate tool to help us do that. Now, because this annotated version of the Doctrine and Covenants is such a massive undertaking, Drew needs some help from others. Drew's plan for getting this annotated version of the Doctrine and Covenants out is through crowdfunding. The link for that will be out April 4th. If you want more details sooner, go to Drew's Facebook page and message him from there, and he'll give you all the details. Further, on Saturday, April 8th, I'll be releasing an episode that talks about this project in greater detail. So please, if you feel impressed to do so and have the means, I'd humbly ask that you reach out to Drew and support this project that will help advance the scholarship and true doctrine of the restored gospel. Look, we live in some pretty challenging times. Instability is all around us and it can feel pretty overwhelming. In order to not just survive, but to thrive in this time, we all need to strengthen our relationship with God, then maximize and engage every promise and gift God has given us. In his new book, Energy Unveiled, Derek Peterson lays out some important principles which will give you the tools and practices to strengthen your relationship with God and help you maximize your own potential to get through these trying times. Head over to mormonrenegade.com, click on the link in this episode page, and get your copy today. So, uh, Deuteronomy 10, verse 1. At that time, uh, Jehovah said unto me, Hew thee two tables of stone like unto the first. So, Moses had to get out the chisel and right. uh, cut out these two. And um, come up unto me in the mount um, and make an ark of wood. And I will write on the tablets the words that were in the first tablets, which thou breakest. Oh. And then you read the JST down there. Um, uh, save for the words of the everlasting covenant of the holy priesthood, and thou shalt uh, put them in the ark. So let me just read that one more time altogether. Um, get tables, tables of stone, verse 1, verse 2. I will write on the tables the words that were in the first tables which thou breakest, save for the words of the everlasting covenant of the holy priesthood, and thou shalt uh, put them in the ark. So, does that sound like a replacement or a redaction? A redaction, because he's saying, he's saying, you know, you you they could have had all this, and and I'll say here that sounds a lot like almost our degrees of glory, right? That that's pretty unique to Mormonism in terms Go of on, heaven, yeah. right? Because. Hell isn't necessarily a fit, you know a place. The hell is is this idea of could have had so much more. You could have had more. Could have had more. That's exactly. And right. and so I would say it's still a blessing to go. You know, if you read the things Joseph taught, we he said if terrestrial if, kingdom yeah, is a kingdom of glory. Yeah, if, if we could see the the celestial kingdom, you know, I've heard people say you'd want to off yourself just to get there right. now, right? And so it. It's redaction seems to be more in line with how God deals with his children more than a replacement. The the other thing I would tend to say is that how could they be ready for Melchizedek things if they hadn't received the ironic things first? Yeah. Yeah. It's I think that's absolutely true, especially since um, 
um, the higher law, the Melchizedek things. Uh, as far as I'm concerned, those are those are all spiritual extensions of the physical things. <clears throat> and so, how can you have this you know this spiritual extension of a non-existent physical thing? Right. Um, it's like it's like having a house with no foundation. Right. Like right. Building, yeah. Right? Yeah. I mean, Lehi had a vision about that. It's no good. So, um, uh, you know, so just some examples of that, uh, kind of concept. So the idea of being immersed in water, uh, you know, in, into the mikvah, you've heard that term probably mm-hmm. before, in the mikvah, um, that is, that is essentially the physical part of baptism, right? But then, uh, but then baptism is, is kind of the higher application. Okay. Right. It's, it's a spiritual, it's a, a spiritual understanding of this physical thing. Um, for the most part, um, not always I'll say, but for the most part, the majority of the times when that's mentioned in the Old Testament, it's talking about, um, it's, it's talking about claim, like physical cleanliness or, or some aspect of that. Okay. So another one is marriage, right? Marriage is in, Marriages in the Old Testament, even plural marriages in the Old Testament. Yep, but uh, but not but sealing is not, or it's uh, you know there's there's hints at it in some places, but um, but sealing is is the the Melchizedek extension of marriage. But marriage is is a principle of of the Torah, and you can't really have um, it doesn't really make sense to have sealings without. Marriage, right. right. You gotta have a, you have to have a relationship to seal. Um, um, you know, the Torah is full of, uh, um, taking care of the widows and the orphans and the poor and, and, uh, all of that. And then the higher application of that is, is consecration. You know? But there's this, there's this seed or this kernel, um, that's in the lower law that just has this higher application. Okay. Um, circumcision. Okay. There's a physical circumcision. But then there's this circumcision of the heart, right? That God, that God wants. But, um, but if you don't understand the physical symbol and what that's about, then the higher application doesn't make as much sense, right? And there's many other things that we could, uh, we could mention there. So, yeah, so I think it, it doesn't make sense to have, <clears throat> to have the higher without the lower, right? No. Because I think it's even referred to as the preparatory gospel, right? Yeah, right. Yeah. And so how can, it would be like walking into a physics exam when you have even studied algebra. Yeah, I've actually, I've heard, I've heard people make funny analogies before. Um, they're like, the lower laws, you know, like it's like high school, but, um, but you know, the higher laws like, is like college or something. And, um, and it's like, the uh, the Israelites they did all the lower law, and now Jesus prepared us for the higher law. So now we're living the higher law. It's like, yeah, but just because your ancestor did high school doesn't qualify you for college, right? You know, you your ancestor could have done just high school, and that's fine. But if you want to do college, you're gonna have to do high school too, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. We don't. Get you got to do both. Yeah. Yeah. I don't get to go in and claim my yeah. my relatives' bachelors and then move <laughs> right. on and to, move on from that and move so, on to graduate school. Right. right. 
So, okay, I'm going to read another um, another verse. Um, this is in Exodus 34, uh, starting in verse 1. This is in the JST um, again. So, And uh, the Lord said unto Moses, Hew thee two other tables of stone like unto the first, and I will write upon them also the words of the law according as they were written at the first on the tables which thou breakest. Mm. But it shall not be according to the first, for I will take away the priesthood out of their midst. And uh, therefore my holy order and the ordinances thereof shall not go before them, for my presence shall not go up in their midst, lest I destroy them. But I will give unto them the law as at the first, but it shall be after a law of carnal commandment, for I have sworn in my wrath that they shall not enter into my presence, into my rest in the days of their pilgrimage. Um, so again, does that sound like replacement or redaction? Redact- redaction. Yeah, absolutely. So the law, uh, the law is not the curse. The, uh, the withholding of the Melchizedek things, that was the curse. The law is not a curse. The law is a necessary thing. And, um, and the law is something that we should take serious, even, even if we are inheritors of the Melchizedek priesthood and all the things that go along with that. We, we we need to realize that um, that on the tables of stone that those things were in the original intention those things were given together and right. they were both part of the blessing that God had um, for Israel. So anyway, okay. Um, so there. So so one uh, one thing is uh, remembering remembering. Uh, what happened at Sinai. Another uh, interesting thing, you know, I mentioned it's like this day of covenant making. So another interesting thing, again, um, and it, I think it's partly because because Shavuot is, the date of Shavuot is kind of hidden. Right. Right. In Leviticus 23, when it gives the dates of the month, of the months for all the feasts for Shavuot, it doesn't give it. Um, so when they, they come to Mount Sinai and, uh, you know, Exodus chapter 19. It's like, it's on the, you know, it's at the, be- they're there at the beginning of the third month, but it doesn't say right. the exact day. And, um, you read about, uh, Noah and the ark and the ark rests and the waters dry up and it gives you some dates there of, you know, this day on this month and, uh, you know, the, the ark rested and then the waters receded and then the land was dry. And, um, um, by the time, uh, let's see if I have it. By the time, oh yeah, here we go. By the time um, they go out, so by the time the the earth is dried, it's the the 27th day of the second month. Right. So we're almost there to the beginning of the third month. And then, uh, you know, Genesis chapter 8 says they they go out of the ark, you know, and then of course uh, they're going to need to get things set up, right? They're going to build shelter, uh, you know, they need to build pens for the animals and stuff. Um, Noah builds an altar and then, um, and then makes, and then God makes a covenant. with him. Hmm. And by the time this happens, it's suspiciously close to Shavuot. Uh, so when God now in the, uh, in the book of Jubilees, which is not in our canon, um, it is in the, uh, the Ethiopic canon, right. if you've heard of that. Yep, yep. So, but we would consider it an apocryphal work, I suppose, but um, in the book of Jubilees, it actually explicitly says that it was on Shavuot that God made the covenant with Noah. 
and uh, in Restoration Scriptures, uh, we know that the covenant with Noah was, this is not actually the first time that God gave that covenant with the rainbow. The first time was with Enoch. And right. So I have yep. every, I have every yep. reason to believe that the covenant that God made with Enoch was also made on uh, on Shavuot too. This is because it's God's covenant day. So there's a lot of uh, um, a lot of things there. Um, another uh, another interesting one in the uh, in the New Testament. Before we get to the the obvious one is uh, the day of Pentecost, right? Because that was explicitly Shavuot. But um, before that, um, uh, Jesus uh, Jesus gets Jesus gives the Sermon on the Mount, and I believe that was a Shavuot setting. Um, we're actually uncertain about the mountain that that was on. Uh, the scripture doesn't say it. Um, and we're also uh, uncertain about the timing. But if you look at the timing, um, uh, you know, Jesus is baptized. And this is, I, I believe, uh, from what the things in John, I believe it's right around Passover that he's baptized, which kind of fits into with what Israel did. Israel, when they came out of Egypt, and they were baptized in the Red Sea. Right. Right. On the seventh day of unleavened bread. That was um uh that was around passover time so jesus was baptized around passover and then um he goes out to the he travels out into the wilderness um which i believe is actually near sinai because when okay. the scriptures talk about the wilderness they're talking about the area where the children of israel wandered they're hearkening back they're not talking about uh, any old place the wilderness is the area around sinai oh yeah. okay <clears throat> um which is also where Lee and his family were going to the wilderness. Right. So anyway, he goes there for 40 days. Um, okay. So, and then he comes back and then he comes, you know, then he's tempted, you know, for a day or whatever. And then he, and then he walks back and he uh, chooses disciples and stuff. And by the time all of these things happen, we're, we're like about 50 days. <laughs> and so, and then he goes up on a mountain. Wow. And, gives this sermon uh, to multitudes of people. Why are there multitudes of people there? I mean, Jesus is not famous yet. He he becomes famous pretty instant, pretty quickly there, but uh, there's multitudes of people there like for his first sermon. Right. And why are there multitudes there? Because uh, it's Shavuot, and this is a time, one of the three times in the year when there's supposed to be a pilgrimage, right? Everyone, right. everyone gathers back um, to Jerusalem, to the temple, um, to bring their offerings to hear the word preached and uh, all those things. So Jesus gives this sermon and he basically gives a sermon on the commandments. Right. Yeah. Uh, sermon on that is, is a sermon on the commandments. And, uh, and there's nothing, there's actually nothing in that sermon. Um, that is, that is really, um, new. A lot of times people think that Jesus was talking about new stuff, but in reality, he was just reminding everyone about the purpose for the reason the law was given. You know, he says, um, he says, uh, in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, you know, you're supposed to love your enemies. People are like, oh, that's like a New Testament thing. Yeah, that's, that's an old, that's an Old Testament thing. Um, you know, I'm going to read, uh, an example of love your, love your enemies. Exodus, uh, 23. So this is like, this is at Sinai. Okay. Exodus 23, verse four through five. Um, if thou meet thine enemy's ox or his ass going astray, thou shalt surely bring it back to him again. If thou see the ass of him that hateth thee, 
lying under his burden and wouldst forbear to help him, thou shalt surely help with him. Like, mm. even your enemies, you are supposed to do good to them. Like, that's in, that's in that harsh yeah. old, harsh old law of Moses, right? Um, Jesus says, not on the Sermon on the Mount, but later on, he says, someone asked him, what are the greatest commandments? And of course, we all know that those are love the Lord thy God and right. love your neighbor as yourself. Right. And a lot of times people point to that too. And they're like, ah, oh, see, there's the higher law that Jesus is talking about, but Jesus is just quoting from the Torah. Well, he's quoting from Deuteronomy six and Leviticus yeah. nineteen. Yeah, and and let's let's for a minute here just kind of parse this out a little bit because I think this is worth talking about. When Jesus comes and he says, "Don't don't think I'm here to destroy the law. I'm yeah. here to fulfill the law." Yeah, I think sometimes people, str- or at least I know I did, struggled with this idea of fulfilling the law. Yeah. What does that mean? Does that mean he just comes to atone and, and that's all? Not that that wouldn't have been enough. I mean, that act in and of itself is is revolutionary. But I, I for me, as, as I've read through the, the Gospels and, and read, read through all of our canon of Scripture, I think when he's saying, I'm here to fulfill the law, I think what he's saying is, okay, you, you got the practice. Now I'm going to tell you what this is really all about. Yeah. I'm going to tell you why it is you're doing what you're yeah. doing. I like this, that. this goes to kind of what, what, what Adam went through when the angel shows up and says, bro, yeah. why are you offering <laughs> sacrifices? He's like, know. I don't know. I was told to. I was told to. Yeah. Right. That's right. And then the angel says, okay, let me fill you in. Yeah, and and sometimes I think that's actually a beautiful analogy to what Jesus is doing. Yeah, I, I, I so I think with this idea of fulfilling the law, I think, and this is just the 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 miracle of Jesus, right? He's not only talking about his atonement and the resurrection. He's saying, "Let me show you. Let me tell you why you're doing what you're doing." Yeah. Why? And he how? elaborates on this, and yeah. he says, "This is why you're doing it, and this is why you." should keep doing this. Yeah. Yeah. Amen. A lot of times um, people will point to that fulfill. I mean, I mean, just, just the word itself, fulfill means to, to pour, you know, like right. you're pouring water in a glass, you, you bring it to its fullness. Absolutely. And a lot of people, but when they, when Christians, you know, uh, read that and a lot of Mormons too, I think, because we've absorbed right. and yeah. Catholic ideas. When we see fulfill, we immediately think that means that Jesus got rid of that stuff. Right. When, when that's not what the word fulfill no. means necessarily, or, or hardly ever it means that. It means to, like, to make something full. You know, another time, uh, just a, a chapter, a chapter or two before the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus uses the word fulfill in another context. He goes to John. John's baptizing in the Jordan. To fulfill all righteousness. Yeah. And he says, let's do this. John says, why? To fulfill all righteousness. Now, we don't read that and think Jesus is doing it. Jesus was baptized, so I don't need to be baptized because he did away with baptism. No, that's not what he's doing. He's he's showing us that uh, not even the Son of God is too good to keep the commandments. That he's going to do it all and show us. Um, not only one that it can be done and two and two why how to do it and three why to do it um 
uh, I think that's, yeah, that is what Jesus means by making the law full. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. And I think this also ties back to this idea of the covenant is still in force, right? Um, we, we look, even as Mormons sometimes, I think we look at this idea of restoration and think, oh, we're just restoring the New Testament stuff. Yeah. That's not, that's not it at that's all. That's not what Joseph was about at all. No. Joseph was like, when you start talking as Joseph did about this dispensation of the fullness of times, the restoration of all things. All things. Everything, he said, everything that has um, been had under the authority of the priesthood in every dispensation right. will be had again. Everything that has ever been done. And that's that's kind of an uncomfortable thing to think of. Partly it's uncomfortable to think of because um, I think we are uh, satisfied in some sense with the progress that the restoration has made. It's like, this stuff has been restored and we're good with that. And it's been that way now for a couple hundred years. Right. Um, there's new revelations. And people get personal revelations. And there's even been, uh, you know, you know, depending on what church you go to, your uh, your prophet has received revelations or things that you believe are revelations. But as far as um, as far as the big picture that Joseph was talking about, that stuff's not done. We are not doing animal sacrifices, uh, doing the feasts. Um, you know, we're not we're not building Zion. You know, the city of Zion. Right. Um, we're not building the temple complex with 24 temples, 12 Aaronic temples, 12 Melchizedek temples. There's a lot left undone. And it's easy sometimes to just think in our in our day-to-day lives that this is this is it. The restoration's kind of kind of done. And the, um, but yeah, and we've right. we've we've achieved a New Testament church or something like right. that. Right. And and that line of thinking that that we have achieved, right? We we've done it. We're good. We can sit back. The 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 lazy part of me, the the sitting on the couch, <laughs> yeah. eating Doritos, keeping uh, track of my fantasy football team. I love that interpretation. <laughs> However, right. in good faith, after reading what I've read, especially the words of Joseph Smith himself, you can't be fulfilled with that, right? You can't be happy with that. It's not enough. And no, I don't think there is another sect of Christendom that seeks salvation on a couple different levels or exaltation on a couple different levels more than Mormonism does. Yeah, amen to that. Because in the Old Testament, you the covenants that were in place were very nationalistic. Now, I don't say nationalistic in terms of like the political theory. I'm talking nationalistic in terms of we're a group of people that are going to be governed by these principles, yeah, right? right? The New Testament, <clears throat> Jesus definitely goes after the heart of the individual. Yes. He's, he he goes, he, he he shies away. I shouldn't say he shies away, but he, he makes a point of emphasis of... He emphasizes. I, t- I would say that's the word. Tell me about your heart. Yeah. You know, let's let's work on the individual. Now, both of those are important. Yeah. How do we know that both of those are still important? Because Joseph Smith, while he did work 
on the on the individual, right? Yeah. It it has to always start with the individual. It goes from individuals to families and then it goes to communities. Communities and nations. In the Old Testament you have those nation things. So Joseph Smith is is yeah. is, is very pronounced on you're going to make personal covenants. But understand this is in preparation so that we can have this society yeah. being Zion. Right. And so it yeah. really Christianity is, kind of like just wants you want a congregation of saved people. Yes. And Joseph wants to build a city. He wants to build, build a nation. A society. Society. He wants yeah. to build that's a right. people that's distinctly different than anything else that's around at the time. That harkens back to ultimately very Old Testament roots, right? Oh, yeah. This idea of Zion, this, inside, this idea of, of Jerusalem, a new Jerusalem. It's it's a hearkening back yeah, unto this temples it, it, and yes, all the things that go along. It with that. very much is the the restoration of all things. Yeah, amen. Uh, I love that. Um, yeah, uh, I totally agree. Um, uh, there's a couple other interesting occurrences of uh, Shavuot. Um, let's see, one of them. Yeah, one of them. Uh, of course, uh, we'll talk. We'll, let's talk about the day of Pentecost. Right okay. Now. So, um, again, timing is uh, critical. Now, we we are told explicitly that it's that it is Pentecost um, or Shavuot. But if we didn't know that, um, you would be able to tell actually from right. what happens. For one, um, we just look at the timing of the events. So, Jesus is crucified on Passover. Right. Okay. He's the pass. He's the Passover man. Um, he's in the tomb for three days, okay, or, you know, parts of three days, depending on what you believe the chronology is. Um, resurrected, you know, shows himself to uh, a couple of people. Um, he walks on the road to Emmaus. He appears to his uh, disciples. You know, these are, you know, there's a, a couple of days there or whatever. And then uh, and then he hangs out with his apostles for 40 days. Right. Okay, so 40 days plus these three days in the tomb and a couple of days on, you know, appearing to people. Like that puts us at, and and then the apostles. So uh, he he hangs out with them, and then the apostles uh, they choose uh, replacement for Judas. And by the time all this happens, like we're looking at fifty days, right? Right. And then so uh, and then so they go to the temple. Why does Peter go to the temple? Why are all those people there who speak different languages? Why are they all there? Because it's Shavuot. Yeah. And they're all there because it's a pilgrimage. Okay. And so. And there's there's these similar um, uh, elements, I'll say. So this is how this is how you would be able to tell. One is the timing. Two is by what happens. So at the at Sinai, there's there's a mountain, there's fire, um, there's uh, the law is given, there's a lawgiver, um, there's uh, you know the sound of wind and rushing of wind, and there's also the uh, there's also the interpretation of tongues. So now so all that's present, you know, in Acts chapter two. <clears throat> um uh and interestingly uh well it's interesting that uh there is this in this interpretation of tongues. A lot of times people say uh that Peter was speaking in tongues. Peter was not speaking in tongues. Peter was speaking in Hebrew or Aramaic or whatever, or maybe Greek, whatever, whatever language Peter normally speaks in. But all these people who had different 
languages and dialects, they were all hearing it in their own tongue. Right. Okay, now this actually harkens back to what happened at Sinai. So, again, you remember that mixed, mixed multitude? multitude? Yeah. Um, and um, you know, the Jews say there was represent- representatives of all of the 70 nations there. And this is not in the this is not in the Torah, but in you know in the Jewish tradition it says that all of those all the mixed multitude that were at Sinai they all heard the word of the Lord in their own language when He gave the law there. Hmm. So this is so what happened at the day of Pentecost is just a mirror image of what happened at Sinai. The other interesting thing, and this is a, kind of a mirror image too, is that it says in Acts that there was three thousand people. Uh, that were saved, so to speak. And this is in contrast to what happened uh, at Mount Sinai when Moses came down and broke the tablets. The people were uh, defiling themselves. And there was a little civil war that happened. And there was 3,000 people killed, slain. Mm -hmm. And then on the day of Pentecost, it says there was 3,000 redeemed. Okay. So, so So that's a beautiful thing. Now, while that's happening... Uh, well, that's happening in uh, the new world, or sorry, in the old world. Um, something's happening in the new world, too, because we know that the descendants of Lehi, like, they kept the Torah, too. Mm-hmm. And so, um, in Third uh, Nephi chapter 8, uh, the destruction um, begins. <clears throat> um, there's darkness and all of that. Um, they hear a voice. Right, and this this is happening when Jesus Jesus' body is in the tomb during those three days of darkness. Um, but then uh, the darkness goes away, and um, and and eventually Jesus comes and visits the the folks in the new world. Now we know he doesn't come uh, right away um, because he's hanging out with his apostles for right forty days um, plus, you know. Plus a little bit of other time when he was um, he was there. So um, when he is when he is available, I'll say when his calendar is cleared, <laughs> so to speak, um, to come and visit the uh, the Nephites, it's right around uh, Shavuot again. The timing. So in um, in Third Nephi uh, chapter ten. Um, let's see, verse 18, actually, so, so, um, in, uh, in chapter 11, right, this is where, um, Christ descends, right? Mm-hmm. And, um, and then speaks to them. But again, all the, all the people, there's, it says there's a multitude and they're all gathered to the temple. And, um, I mean, I think that that's not an insignificant detail. I think they're gathered there because it's, one of at least it's one of those three times, um, uh, and I believe it's it's uh, Shavuot, and um, so there is controversy. I'm going to read uh, one verse here, um, thirty-five, ten, eighteen, and it came to pass that in the ending of the thirty and fourth year, behold, I will show unto you that the people of Nephi who were spared, and also those who had been called Lamanites who had been spared, did have great favors shown unto them. And great blessings poured out upon their heads. So, um, you know, the uh, the darkness and stuff happened on in the first month of the 30, um, 
34th year. Mm-hmm. Right? He says, by the at the end of the 34th year, he says there's all these blessings. Um, and it says, uh, insomuch, which is an old word that means um, since. Um, insomuch, or since, uh, or because, uh, that soon after the ascension of Christ into heaven, he truly manifest himself unto them. So it was soon after his ascension that he manifested himself to them, uh, which to me says Shavuot. Right. Because that was right. Shavuot was right, or Pentecost was right after the ascension. And uh, Jesus appears. And then uh, by the end of the 34th year, um, they are, they've built this righteous society and things are going well for them. So, so again, there's these, uh, there's these elements there also. So we can tell kind of from the timing and um, this little hint here in third Nephi, but also in the elements. Again, there's a mountain. Well, uh, back at Pentecost, there was a mountain too. Right. Which was the temple. Because right. the temple is the mountain of the Lord. Right. So here right. in Bountiful, they're at the mountain and um, Jesus comes down um, and gives the law. He actually gives a sermon very similar to the Sermon on the Mount, right? Sermon okay. at Bountiful is yep. very similar yeah. to the Sermon yeah. on the Mount, which I believe was a Shavuot sermon as well. Okay, and um, <clears throat> so, um, so there's all these uh, all these hints there. Another interesting. Um, well, let, I don't know. Go ahead. If you yeah, guys. Well, let me ask a question here, real quick, because there's there's something in seventeen that I've always kind of found interesting. 3517? Yeah. Okay. And this is why they're still at the temple. But real quick, is there any sort of family like like with Passover, there's a family meal, right, that happens. Does anything like that happen during Shavuot? Shavuot. Um, uh, there... Um, it's, it's not, uh, it's not, uh, to the same extent as Passover. We do have a, we do have a family thing that we do. Um, why do you ask? Well, let me, let me take a look at 17 here. And this is something that I had read for years and years and never picked out. And, um, this is. After he's given the Sermon on the Mount, this is right before he heals everybody. And he's getting ready to leave for Mm -hmm. a a spell. And uh, I'll just start in verse 1 here of of 317. It says, Behold, now it came to pass that when Jesus had spoken these words, he looked around about again on the multitude, and he said unto them, Behold, my time is at hand. I perceive that ye are weak. Ye cannot understand all my words which I am commanded of the Father to speak unto you at this time. Therefore, go ye unto your homes and ponder upon the things which I have said, and ask the Father in my name that ye may understand and prepare your minds for the morrow, and I come again. Yeah. Now, let's let's paint the picture. There were probably people there for, I'm not even, Pentecost. Pentecost. How's that? That's great. Um, they were, they were there for that, but also you get the sense from the, Proceeding that people who had survived those cataclysms came to the bountiful temple to see the Savior. Yeah. There's massive destruction. Right. 
there are whole cities sunk, whole right. mountains fallen, yeah. fire, earth, air, water, and fire. They all are destroyed. And, by and maybe this has no tie here, but uh, to to what we're talking about. But it's something I always found interesting. And so when you brought this up, I was just wondering, where does he tell the people to go? Just go home, right? So is that what you said? Yeah, yeah, go home. Yeah, yeah. Where's home? Mm-hmm. Most of their homes are toast. <laughs> Maybe. Uh, right? right? Most of theirs are probably gone. Yeah. I think what he's saying is, is go back to your family. Now, this is, I will say, uh, okay, I like that. Keep keep going. I, I think what he's saying here is he's like, look, even though you've seen me here, that's great. You need to go home to your families and talk about this mm-hmm. as families. Yeah, he, yeah. Subtly, or maybe not so subtly, only subtly to us, he's re-emphasizing the importance of your family. Yeah, no, I like that. Understand, this is this is important. He could have said, "Just hang out here. Yeah. I'm I'm right here. We're, yeah, we're we'll good. Just hang out. We'll keep hanging out. We'll, we'll just keep hanging out." Oh, yeah, but yeah. instead, he says, "Go home. Let me digest this." But a lot of those people's homes. And prepare yourself for more. Yeah, and prepare yourself for more. I th- I don't know. You Just, know, that is part of uh, Shavuot. Uh, when, um, actually, I'll, I'll tell you, the reason why uh, the reason why the conference, the Restoration Torah conference, is Friday and Saturday is because in Exodus um, 19, oh, yeah, 19, um, when... And God is getting ready to give him the sapphire mm-hmm. tablets. He actually tells him, he says, take take a couple of days, two days, he says, and prepare yourselves to receive mm. um, what I have for you. Now, um, as far as uh, Jewish traditions go, um, uh, the feast days are, are always family and community days. Um, so it's not quite the same as uh, Passover where there's a meal. But what they'll actually do is, um, because, because the feasts are like reenactments mm-hmm. of what happened because you want this same blessing. So, uh, one of the, the traditions that they have is on, on the day of Shavuot, they have like a, they stay up all night studying the scriptures basically. Oh, but now that's fascinating. They stay up all night because they want to be prepared. For God to give them, like personally, they want to be at Sinai. They want to be ready for God to give them the Torah. So that they can tell their children, you know, so they can tell their children, God gave me the Torah. So that, you know, not just God gave our ancestors. Right. God gave me the Torah. Almost so, a different way of saying, go home and ponder on these things. Yeah, yeah. I think I think you uh, might be onto something there. Um Actually, this reminded me there was, um, yeah, he, he heals them and blesses their little ones and says they're surrounded by fire again. So there's, again, there's that. And, and Pentecost, right? There's fire. Right, yeah. And Sinai, there's fire. Fire, yeah. Yeah, so there's these, uh, these repeating elements that, uh, that you might miss, uh, if you don't, if you're not familiar with the Torah. Basically. Right. Which right. is what everything is built upon. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's good stuff. Um, Another uh, notable um, occurrence of this in the scriptures is uh, when they enter the promised land. Now, uh, do you know when they enter the promised land? 
Can you guess? Shavuot. Uh, you are close. Passover. Okay. It says actually they the Jordan River splits, right? And they go over the Jordan oh, River. Oh, that's right. Yeah. In a very similar way to what happened with the Red Sea. And they celebrate Passover uh, in the land. They, they spend their first week in the Promised Land doing Passover. Okay. And then... And then they uh, conquer Jericho, right? hmm. and um, uh, you know, and that take you again. You kind of uh, you can kind of look at the the timing of things um, where they go and they uh, they uh, you know they have the Passover and that takes uh, or the unleavened bread and that takes a week Passover and the unleavened bread that takes a week and then you know they they march around Jericho and that takes. You know, a week plus because they got to get ready. And then right. when they're ready, then they they do the week thing, and then they conquer and uh, Jericho, and then and then they get ready to uh, conquer AI, and um, which is kind of a battle that we're fighting right now. Yeah, I was gonna say there's some <laughs> interesting parallels there. <laughs> AI beats them at first. Yeah, let's not let's not focus. On that. Let's <laughs> let's just focus on the end game. Um, so they repent and uh, they defeat AI, and. Um, and anyway, you just look at kind of the timing of how long all of these things would have taken. And then um, it doesn't – again, it doesn't say the date, but it's it's about 50 days. And then, right. And then Joshua goes up on uh, Mount um, – the two mountains there, Mount Ebal and um, – the other one escapes me. Anyway, anyway and uh, basically takes some stones and he puts plaster over them and writes the oh. law on these stones. And reads the law again to the people. And why are they doing that? It's because it's they are rehearsing Shavuot again. Right. What happened at Sinai. And but they're doing it in the land. Uh, you know. Um, in the promised land. And um so there's some there's some really interesting things actually that have been discovered recently uh with Mount Ebal and the uh like the, the tablet. Have you heard about the the lead tablet that was yes. discovered there recently with yep. like the oldest, um, uh, it's like the oldest scripture, scriptural, uh, fragment right. that we have. And, you know, Mormons mm-hmm. should be, their ears should be perking up because it's yeah. so cool because it's on a metal tablet and it's a chiasmus yep. and, um, all the amazing things. Now, the, uh, the instructions for Joshua to do that, uh, are in Deuteronomy. So this mm-hmm. is another kind of amazing thing is that it, and and they've dated the you know they carbonated the bones and they they taken samples of that little lead and they found out you know that this is like it was like lead that was probably came from Greece and at this time period and basically um, um, the things that happened there at Mount Ebal basically happened at the time when the Bible said they were supposed to have happened. Crazy, I know. Weird, weird, <laughs> <It's> weird. <laughs> what a coincidence. Anyway, again, archaeological evidence um, is kind of slow in its progress. We can come up. We can come up with theories about things happened a lot faster than we can make discoveries about what things happened. Well, and I've got my own special take on archaeology. I mean, look, this is a discipline that's only been in existence for a hundred years. Yeah. But somehow, in that hundred years, we've been able to figure out everything that's ever happened within the human story, right. and not get one thing wrong. All right. Right. Yeah. <coughs> Funny. So. Anyway, I I like that because uh, there is um, um, <clears throat> there is a uh, the documentary hypothesis um, for the the Torah 
I assume you've heard about that. No. Before, the idea is, and there there certainly is some merit to this, okay? So, and I, we don't get, need to get into the details, but the idea is that um, the Torah was not written by Moses, but that um, Moses was fictional, or even if he, or if he was real, that uh, he just spoke some things, and eventually um, some scribes wrote it down, and there's different groups of scribes that wrote it down, and they all kind of, uh, and eventually there was uh, um, some editor that kind of compiled these and like changed things to like make these different things fit. And by the time, uh, by the time we have the Torah, like, and then Deuteronomy was the last thing written. But do and but according to this theory, that Deuteronomy was not written until or like didn't become a book of scripture to the Jews until after the time of Jeremiah. Hmm. Uh, uh, you know, with and King Josiah, but uh, uh, that's an interesting theory, and there are definitely some things in the text that, like for example, um, Deuteronomy talks about Moses's death. Well, Moses didn't write that, probably. Um, so, but the conclusion that the Deuteron the the uh, documentary hypothesis folks jump to, uh, I think, and I think it's an error, obviously, is well since. Moses didn't write that. It was one or two verses. He probably didn't write any of it. It was all it was all late, you know, late things. <laughs> but uh, you know, this kind of, this. I mean, this. We have the Book of Mormon, and we know that those folks, like Nephi, went back to get the five books of Moses, right, at the time of Jeremiah. Like, but according to this hypothesis, Deuteronomy wasn't a, it wasn't a book. The fifth book wasn't a book until after Lehi's time. Anyway, this um um. That's a hell of a claim to make based on two little lines. Well, it's not only that. Oh, okay. Uh, but um, uh, but I don't think uh, it, it is the scholarly point of view, though. Um, but I don't. I do not think it's. Uh, I do not think that the text necessitates a belief in documentary. Right. No, I don't think so either. Um, and also, um, this uh, this recent discovery um, of the cursed tablet and and the altar that was found and all the other things of uh, the uh, archaeological evidence there um, it takes a lot of um, a lot of the wind out of the sails of the the, oh, I imagine, yeah. the documentary hypothesis because um, because uh, those artifacts that they found um, and whose instructions were given in the book of Deuteronomy um, those uh, the book of Deuteronomy was supposedly written many, many centuries after um, after right. what happened with Joshua, you know, what was supposed to have happened with Joshua. So, anyway, that's my take, uh, my take on that. So, okay, I'm going to, um, we've talked about um, a bunch of different, uh, oh, I'm going to say one other significant one. This is a book, this is a Book of Mormon, another Book of Mormon one. It's, it's pretty interesting. Um, Again, the timing is the timing with this one. The date is not given, but the symbolism is definitely Shavuot, because Moses comes down from the mountain and um, you know his his face is shining right, right. because he was transfigured. Yeah. Yep, right. His face is transfigured. He's he's shining. His face is shining, and he's talking about the he's given the the commandments right. Talking about the commandments, and does that happen in the Book of Mormon? Someone, uh, anyone have their face shining and talking about the, com the Ten Commandments? Oh, yeah. Yeah, Abinadi, right? Yep. Yeah, talking to the uh, 
Noah and his uh, wicked priest. So this, the the symbolism of his face shining is to get us to remember Moses. Moses, yeah, and what happened at Sinai. Well, let me ask you this: We know that Moses was transfigured on Sinai, Shavuot, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Any links showing that the Savior's transfiguration up on the mountain happened during Shavuot? That's, uh, I don't know. Uh, I haven't looked into that. That's an interesting question, though, because, and also Moses is there. Yeah. Right? So um, I think that's an interesting possibility. Uh, Yeah, I don't know. Hmm. I'll have to look into that. Thank you. Okay, here's here's another one. Um, Again, it's uh, when is when is Shavuot this year? Um, this year it's going to be on May twenty eighth, and because the biblical calendar doesn't, the biblical calendar doesn't line up with the, right. the Gregorian calendar, which is what we use. Right? The Gregorian calendar is a strictly solar calendar. Um, the Hebrew or the biblical calendar is a lunisolar, so the months kind of move around a little bit. Um, but it's generally, Shavuot is generally towards the end of May, beginning of June. Okay. Okay, so this is Covenant Day. So um, this goes to the uh, the priesthood restoration. Okay. So it is it is amazing um, for as significant a date or a significant a thing as the restoration of the Melchizedek priesthood is, uh, we actually don't have a date for when... Peter, James, and John showed up. Right. Yeah. No, right. that's, yeah. Which is, uh, which is interesting. I mean, we know when John the Baptist came. Yeah. May 15th. Right. But we know that sometime after May 15th and um, sometime uh, before, before the end of June, um, that the priesthood restoration. Wow. <laughs> we know the first mention that we have of it is in Doctrine and Covenants 18. And uh, we actually don't know when that revelation was received, except it says uh, it was in June of 1829. Um, so it was before that revelation, whenever that was. And, you know, um, historians have kind of narrowed it down, but we actually, to, like, most likely dates. But um, anyway, it's right in there, um, end of May, beginning of June. And, you know, it's my personal belief that it was... That during, that yes. was tied into Shavuot. Dude, it's so likely, right? Because, I mean, we have other significant events from church history right. that correspond with with Jewish festivals and yeah. Jewish feast days. And so, and this is Covenant Day. Yeah. This is Covenant-making yeah. day. Yeah, so. absolutely. The old and covenant of the priesthood. And, you know, yeah. the, yeah. Actually, um, I'm going to read, this reminded me, in, in uh, Doctrine and Covenants 84, um, well, I, I won't read it, but I'll I'll just summarize. But uh, of course, eighty four has a lot to do with the. Mm-hmm. But one of the things in there is it actually again talks about the um, the replacement versus the redaction hypothesis, and I think very clearly support the words clearly support the redaction hypothesis. But it talks about the the Aaronic and the Melchizedek priesthoods being together, right? And so, and we know that in at least in Israel's history, at least since Egypt, like when they received the Melchizedek, or when the Melchizedek priesthood was offered the first time, it was Shavuot, because the first set of tablets had Mm -hmm. Melchizedek stuff. 
So that's when the Melchizedek priesthood was offered, at least. Oh, okay. Right? Yeah. Um, yeah. So I think it's perfectly reasonable to uh, to make that, that inference that yeah. it was offered again in this dispensation, offered at Shavuot. Absolutely. Wow. So, how to, how to celebrate it? Um, um, well, uh, a really good way to celebrate it is to uh, come to the Restoration Torah Conference. I was going to say, if there was only a <laughs> conference that was happening during that. Um, uh, so, I would highly recommend that. Other things that uh, they do, you know, I mentioned that uh, a tradition is to stay up right. studying the scriptures in preparation you know, as though you as though you were anticipating um, the revelation at Sinai, as though right. you were getting ready to appear before God and receive whatever He has to give you. Okay, so I mean that's a heavy thing. Yeah. Okay. Um, and I'm gonna read. I'm gonna read one other thing. Um, this is in uh, Deuteronomy chapter 16, uh, verse 16. Uh, and we'll read 17, too. Okay. <clears throat> Three times in a year shall all thy males appear before Yahweh thy God in the place which he shall choose, in the Feast of Unleavened Bread, that's one, in the Feast of Weeks, Shavuot, that's two, and in the Feast of Tabernacles, or Sukkot, so that's three. And then here's what he says. Um, he says, and... And they shall not appear before the Lord empty. Verse 17. Every man shall give as he is able, according to the blessings of the Lord thy God, which he hath given thee. So one of the things that is Shavuot is a time for is bringing your offering to God. And it says, you bring an offering, and it says everyone. Everyone. No one is exempt. Everyone, no one is supposed to appear before the Lord empty-handed. But everyone's supposed to come according to the blessing uh, that you've been blessed with. So some are going to have more, some are going to have less. That's okay, but do not come empty-handed. Right. But uh, so you want to know how to uh, keep Shavuot? Uh, make an offering. Yeah. To the Lord, and that can be. I'm not you know, going to tell you what that ought to be, you probably already know, uh, or you'll have an idea. And if you don't know, then, you know, pray and ask, you know, you know, give, give some extra tithing, give some extra offerings, um, help a charity, help your neighbor, do it anonymously or, uh, or do it in person, whatever it is. Um, uh, repent of some pet sin that you have, <laughs> you know, um, Give up some worldly thing that you know you should give up. Bring an offering. That's awesome. Yeah. It's, dude, these conversations have been amazing. I mean, absolutely amazing. Um, I, you know, I don't know if you know anything about it, but a Torah portions. Yeah, sure. We'll have to, we'll have to sit down and have a conversation about those. Okay. Cause that fascinates me mm-hmm. a lot. Um, and then maybe, um, cause I know like certain lunar, um, signs are important in Judaism. Yeah. And I'd like to go over some of those when, when okay. we have a few moments. Yeah, but, sure. 
Yeah, absolutely. I want to keep having you on, even though we've we've wrapped up the calendar series. There's plenty more to talk about. Absolutely. Well, dude, it's been awesome. Anything you want to say in conclusion? Uh, no, I think we uh, I think we covered a lot of it. But um, uh, looking forward to this Shavuot. Hope to see uh, many people there. Yeah, at the conference, um, if you can make it. And uh, if you can't, by the way, too, I'll say um, the conference journals. Mm-hmm. Uh, with the printed now, a lot of the uh, the talks have been recorded and they're on YouTube. They're on the Zarahemla Foundation YouTube channel. If you want to look at, excuse me, um, look at past years, and also um, the, the the talks are going to be recorded um, this year as well. Similar, they'll be put on YouTube uh, eventually. It takes us, we're kind of slow, um, but also the conference journals are available on Amazon too. Nice. Um, if you want to get past years for uh, whatever reason. <laughs> if you want a collection. Um, uh, so those are available there too if you're not able to come in person to uh, pick one up. So Perfect. Dude, it's awesome. Good stuff. Yeah, it's been great. Awesome. All right. Bye, everybody. Bye. You're listening to the Mormon Renegade Podcast.